Good evening, everybody. It is so good to see you here tonight. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, as you might have guessed here, at Luke chapter 6, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there. Uh, We're getting a chance tonight to talk about the topic of legalism. That's one of the things that we'll see uh, this evening. And uh, isn't it great to get to come out, like Parker said, and I think Wednesday night, for, there, there's a bunch of denominations that don't do Wednesday night. I've been thankful that we as Baptists do because it just gets you through the rest of the week sometimes, doesn't it? And, uh, and so there's such a boost to come to worship the Lord together. I, I love the song we started out with. Both those songs, wonderful, but Be Thou My Vision, been one of my favorites for a long time. I've heard that may very well be the oldest hymn that we sing. Uh, at one time, that song actually existed in Old English that we don't speak anymore, uh, but uh, coming from Ireland, and that may be the oldest hymn uh, that we sing. I found out in church life when somebody says, no, I want to sing those old, old hymns, that usually means the songs from the 1920s that we just hadn't sang together for a while, but some of these songs are old, 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 old hymns, and that's one of them, but timeless truth. You know, when I think about legalism, I thought of a funny story of being in seminary. At least I think it's funny. Hopefully you will as well. It took me about six years to get through seminary, going part-time while I was in ministry. I was a student pastor and then an associate pastor. And so any of you who've ever uh, been through Bible college or seminary, you know it's kind of its own culture. And I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and it's got its own culture. I took about 30 hours at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and transferred them over, over here in Wake Forest, not Winston-Salem, but Wake Forest over near Raleigh. And you sort of get the distinct culture of each place. And one of the ways that I would get those classes done, I couldn't take them all online. Some of them I had to do what was called a J term. J, I think, stands, you're just praying for the end. It's, uh, you try to, you take the whole semester and you cram it into one week. And so for eight hours a day, you're listening to lectures. And then for the eight hours and we, uh, deep into the night, you're doing homework and writing papers and all kinds of stuff so that you can get everything done in one week. It's kind of a nightmare sometimes. And so you're sitting there, and I don't know how many of y'all have, uh, you might feel like this before we're done tonight, but you start listening to stuff for five hours, six hours, seven hours, eight hours. You listen to eight hours of lecture every day, and your mind starts to just sort of run down a little bit. Maybe not you, but for me it does. And you start thinking, boy, how am I going to keep my brain turned on here and keep moving? Well, I found out when I went to seminary, unlike when I went to college, you couldn't come just with a notebook and write things down. We were in the computer age at this point. Everybody had their laptop, and so I had my laptop there taking notes. And uh, I said, I'm going to have to do something to, uh, to keep this brain going so I can keep listening to this guy. And so in the corner of my screen, I put a little solitaire game there open, and I was... Before the Lord, I was listening. I was still with him. I was paying attention, but I was trying to keep my brain going. Now, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, when we reached our next classroom break, somebody came up to me and they said, um, I'd just like to, uh, to challenge you on the fact that while we're having class, I would appreciate it if you didn't play solitaire on your computer. I don't feel like that's respectful. And I said, sure thing. Sorry about that. I'll close it down and, and stop. And so that was it. I didn't play solitary anymore. Uh, about a year later, I was taking a class at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest. 
has a little bit different of a culture. We were there on a weekend for what was called a hybrid class, and so we were having lecture all day on Saturday. Sure enough, there was a fellow beside me that I think started to have the same problem uh, that I had back at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, except he didn't take out a solitaire game. He decided since it was Saturday and there was college football on, he made a full screen link in to the college football game that he was concerned about. He didn't play any volume from it, thankfully, but while the professor was speaking, he was watching football on the full screen. Nobody said a word to him. So if you ever want to know the difference between the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Southeastern Baptist, that's one way I can tell you. Now, I'm not necessarily saying somebody telling me not to play solitaire is the best definition of legalism, but when we think about that word, we usually think about the fact that legalism is a way of finding fault in other people. It's a way of kind of driving at the wrong things instead of Christ. Aren't you glad as we're here tonight that the great hope of eternity is not that we can hope to keep all the rules, but that Jesus Christ has taken our place, and because of His grace for an eternity of eternities, we will never unravel all that He's done for us. Aren't you thankful for that? If we were really just about a society of people trying to prove we were holier than the next person beside us, what a depressing state that would be. And so Jesus is walking through His time of ministry. He's beginning so much of that, and He's going to begin to encounter the pushback of legalism uh, that's coming from the Pharisees, and He now finally is going to step further in tonight. And so I'd like to look at uh, Luke chapter 6. We're going to begin with verse 1 here in just a moment. I got scared. I looked down at my clock and realized we go till 7.30. I thought for a minute my story had taken so long we only had 10 minutes. I was going to have to have a I'm going to have to be hard on myself later, but I won't have to be legalistic on myself now. Let's read in Luke chapter 6, and we'll start with verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence? which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that tonight, as we have already been able to worship, as we have been led in prayer, as we've recognized that around this room, Father, there's different valleys that people find themselves in. There's different challenges. And Lord, every single one of us come in here bearing the weight, the reality of our need for forgiveness, our need for your grace. And so, Father, thank you that as we gather together here, that the Son of Man is Lord over everything that we face, over every trial that we walk through, over every obstacle and accusation of the enemy. And so, Father, today, would you draw us into the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ above the nitpicking and above the attempts that the enemy would have to move us in a different direction than looking full into Jesus' face and having him be the vision of our hearts and lives. So, Father, we commit this time to you. We ask for your help, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The disciples were walking by a grain field uh, in the first passage that we see today. I doubt very many of us have walked by a grain field and thought, hey, a snack, great. That's not a normal thing for us. 
Uh, I know it, it, some of you may reach back far enough that that may have happened. I've never had that experience myself. Uh, but they walked by and were able to kind of glean some grain to have a snack. I've been in places on mission trips where it's normal for people to pick the fruit off the trees on the side of the road and that kind of thing. And that can be a blessing. I've never crunched up a head of grain uh, and eaten it, but this was not uncommon in Jesus' day. You can see how someone would take uh, a head of grain and they would then sort of just work the husk away from what could be eaten, sort of like a sunflower seed or a pistachio if we want to try to contextualize it the best we can. They'd sort of work out the shell and, uh, and take the part that they could eat and go ahead and, and take part in that way. And the Pharisees, of course, said, uh, well, y'all shouldn't be doing this. It's the Sabbath today. You shouldn't be going by and, and eating the grain. Uh, that's not something that's allowed. You know, interestingly enough, even for context's sake, when we come into this passage, what they're quoting is not even the Scripture. I don't know if you realize that. What they're leaning on uh, was a document called the Mishnah. It was a later writing. It was not part of the Bible, but it gave a lot of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. Would you like to hear them? These are the things that are eliminated or, or they, are, they are disallowed in, on the Sabbath day. Uh, you cannot carry, burn, extinguish. So I hope you didn't start burning before you needed to extinguish. You cannot finish write, erase, cook, wash, sew, tear, tie something in a knot, untie something that is knotted. You cannot shape, plow, plant, reap, harvest, thresh, which is what they claim they're doing. You cannot winnow, you cannot select, you cannot sift, grind, knead, comb, spin, dye, as in D-Y-E. You cannot stitch a chain, you cannot warp anything, you cannot weave anything, you cannot unravel anything, you cannot build, you cannot demolish, you cannot trap, shear, slaughter, skin, tan, smooth, or mark. Now doesn't that sound like a great Saturday? I'm told that still to this day in New York, where there's a large uh, sector of, of Orthodox Jews that live there, there are multi, you know, scores of floors, skyscrapers, where on Saturday, the elevators are made in such a way that you can step in and ride floor to floor without having to push the buttons to say what floor you're going to, because that's work. Now, I don't know about you, but it feels more like work to go up 86 flights of uh, of stairs in an elevator going one floor by one floor, but this is still something that's with us. This idea of what you cannot do uh, on a Sabbath or, or what the, the hope that you would somehow not be able to do uh, the things that would seem perhaps very basic to us. This is a sign in Israel that tells about uh, a place, the tombs of the patriarchs and matriarchs. There are gates that on Saturday open automatically uh, with sensors and they don't require any human touch or anybody to man the gate. Still, Sabbath laws very much uh, in, in, in order there or, or used in that way. Now, the disciples were told they couldn't thresh. That's what category uh, came in there. Let me describe to you what this means. That means all operations where food is separated from its natural container. Uh, both solid and liquid foods are included. So the prime example is threshing grain to remove its husk like they would do. But it would also include things like squeezing a fruit for its juice or for milking a cow. 
now, I didn't grow up on a farm, but my understanding from what I've heard is you'd have a hard time explaining to the cow early on Saturday morning, sorry, Bessie, you're going to have to wait one more day. Some of y'all might need to correct me on that later. But there's a way in which th- th- it becomes almost ridiculous that these are all the things you cannot do. You might remember elsewhere in the Gospels where Jesus says of the Pharisees, you teach as doctrine the commandments of men. And that's what's happening here, that they've mixed up what God has said and what man has said. That's actually the first thing that I've got for you on your outline tonight. Legalism begins when you confuse what God has said with what man has said. Legalism begins when you confuse what God has said with what man has said. When things start getting really specific and start really starting to reach past what God has actually indicated, we have to be very careful. And so on the Sabbath, while his disciples were hungry, they began to take the heads of grain to thresh them, so to speak, to, to get the husk removed and to eat. And immediately they're met with the legalism of the Pharisees. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus gives them an example from the book of, uh, I believe it's 1 Samuel, uh, where David is with an army that is, is famished and they need to eat. And it's there that the priests allow them to eat uh, what's called the showbread. It would look something like this, uh, sort of an altar table equivalent in some ways. But this bread would be reserved for the priests. It was set aside and set apart. It was not just a buffet that people could come by and eat. But the priests realized for their situation that it was right for them to be able to eat this. And, uh, and so Jesus references even this as a way in which God met human need in an area where that was more important than perhaps keeping a rule that was not designed ultimately for the sake of the rule. And so when the Pharisees say, why are you not, or why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, Jesus could have gone back to Levitical law to explain why what was being done was not out of uh, the laws of the Sabbath, what the Bible actually said. He could have gone a number of places, but refers back to a narrative about David to help remind the Pharisees that this is really about people and about their need. You know, the second thing that I've got there today is, as well is legalism makes us cold-hearted to human need. One of the things that begins to happen in our hearts when we start to chase after who's the most holy and how can I look for the speck that's in my brother's eye and not deal with the plank that's in my own eye, when we start to chase after performance and somehow accomplishing something that only God has accomplished and that makes us start, sort of start getting focused on what we think other people are doing or not doing is what we begin to do is we neglect human need. All of a sudden when someone's hungry, that doesn't even attend to our way of thinking. We're just concerned about the rules. We're just concerned about what that's going to be. And I think Satan is just fine a lot of times with believers trying to get to be the smartest they can be and on their own minds where they think they're the holiest they can be or they can do this or they can do that when all of a sudden there's a world that needs the kindness, the love, the mercy of God's church. And we can neglect that real quick if we're just focused on how can I be better than the next person And how can I do this or how can I do that? Legalism will make us cold-hearted in a number of ways, and one of those ways is human need. And then the third thing, legalism elevates rules above ruler. Legalism elevates rules above ruler. 
You might remember in John's gospel where as the mob is coming to Jesus in the temple courtyards and he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. You have this great, we call it these days, I think a mic drop. You've ever heard that phrase used? He has a mic drop moment with all of them. And they miss the idea that, that who's standing in front of them is the son of God. They, they completely miss that. And here they're having an argument with Jesus about the law, he himself being the word. They're missing the fact that he is standing uh, in their midst. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Aren't you thankful that for any accusation that would ever be brought against us, you, you know, Satan, that word literally means the accuser, that for the way in which Satan would try to make us guilty, that Jesus is the ruler who's above the rules, that his grace is above any accusation that can be made against us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of our lives. That as Pastor Brandon's been leading us through on Revelation on Sundays, that the book of life is not something that anybody else gets to go and open up and scratch their own lines with whatever ink pen they brought to the table. That's God's book and God's authority. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Can we keep reading? Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, uh, them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. You know, as we gather together with people that we love, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we recognize that different folks are carrying different burdens, even as we just prayed a moment ago for folks in our midst just who are uniquely walking through some difficult things, as we do that, I mean, does that not move our hearts towards the reality that our great need is God with us, present with us as we're walking through each day? The Pharisees go into the synagogue. Here's a picture of the, what's left of the synagogue in Chorazin, if you were to go there. At least this is what it looked like in the 1960s. I don't know what it looks like now. That was what was left of the synagogue that was there. Perhaps Jesus in a place like this, or perhaps even Chorazin, we're not told, having this conversation that we see today, as he's standing in the synagogue, there are people there who are hoping that someone gets healed. And do you catch why they're hoping that someone gets healed? So that they might have a reason to accuse Jesus. Can you imagine going to one of your loved one's hospital rooms? And seeing them experience a great miracle and having anything else on your heart other than rejoicing and thankfulness for that. And so in the midst of this, this is how heartless these people have become because of the legalism that's burning inside of them. Is that even healing is something that's drawing them away from what God's doing in God's heart. Number four is this, when we set out to condemn, we run the risk of being blind to the truth. When we set out to condemn, we run, we run the risk of being blind to the truth. All of a sudden, we don't see real clearly if what our main focus is, is I, I'm, I just hope this person, you know, 
goes down in a blaze of glory. I, I just hope that they're going to get, you know, what's coming to them or whatever it might be. If that starts being our focus, we can mess the truth up real quickly. Abraham Lincoln once said it this way, if you look for the wrong in someone, you will always find it. Now, they couldn't find it in the Lord Jesus because he's the one exception to that rule. But I guarantee you, for any one of us who starts focusing on anybody else and tries just to find the wrong, well, sooner or later, you're going to find it. But that's going to twist your own version of reality, your understanding of truth, if you're simply looking for condemnation. The Pharisees come to a synagogue and they're going to see a miracle and they're going to miss what it means because their hearts are after the wrong thing. This is on another Sabbath. I believe some translations even say on a second Sabbath. And there's some discussion about what that might mean, whether that was, you know, the next week, whether that was after a feast. You know, those are the fun Bible college discussions that I'll leave you to have with somebody else. But on another Sabbath, a different one than we see pictured at first in, in the early part of the chapter, on another one, he enters the synagogue and there was a man whose right hand was withered. We're not told incredibly what this means or just how debilitating this was, whether this was a result of a life-threatening uh, uh, problem or whether this was simply something that just meant his hand uh, was not able to be used, his right hand was not. But Jesus, knowing what the Pharisees are up to, doesn't just do this as an object lesson, but because of the person that he cares for who has a need, uh, he heals him calls the man to come and stand there, and he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to now the Pharisees, you, you ever been in a situation perhaps when you were in school where the teacher knew your, your group was the one that was guilty, and she knew exactly how to turn and focus and say, now, whoever decided it was a good idea, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da, and she somehow seemed to lean into your group. Somehow she knew that. You don't know how. But Jesus knows what's going through these men's hearts, and he turns his gaze towards them. And he said, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Now, because of this wording, there are some who believe that whatever this man was facing was life-threatening, that Jesus wasn't simply giving him the use of his hand back but he was literally turning around something that could take his life. And so he begins to ask the Pharisees, what's more important? Keeping what you believe to be a rule because someone besides God has said it's a rule? Or not making someone continue in a situation that's destroying them for another 24 hours just to appease your rules? You know, if you've been in church for a while, all of us at some point walking through a church environment, we, we walk through a situation where we say, well, you know, if we do such and such, so-and-so is just not going to like that. And sometimes that's a good reason not to do something. Other times, and I've probably been in this category too, where it's, well, maybe I'm the one that needs to change my attitude then, if that's how I feel. That, aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus, when we read in the Gospels, I don't ever see him say, you know, I'd love to do this, but so-and-so just might not appreciate that. They might not think the right thing about that. Amen. Aren't you glad there's never going to come a day where the Lord Jesus is more worried about what other people think than what the truth is in regards to you? Aren't you thankful? 
And so Jesus here standing with this man, a withered hand, and perhaps, you know, his right hand, unable to care for himself, unable to have a living, unable to support a family, so many things that he's facing that we don't even know about. And in the light of all of that, Jesus doesn't choose the crowd that everybody else sides with out of fear. He chooses this one man. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? The old church phrase, sins of omission and sins of commission, that we often think about things that are wrong to do. And at times we don't as quickly think about the things that are wrong not to do, do we? We don't always say, you know, if I really had the Lord's heart, it wouldn't mean that I did nothing in this circumstance. It would mean that I'd act. It would mean that I'd have compassion. It would mean that I'd have mercy. It would mean that I would, uh, that I would stand with this person. Luke will go on to give us one of Jesus' parables of the Good Samaritan. And you remember all those religious people that passed by on the way and went to the other side of the road. But it was the Samaritan who stopped and did something about it. Mark's gospel actually tells us that as Jesus looked at the Pharisees, we get a line that's not included in Luke. That as he poses this question to them, essentially they don't have anything to say back to him. They just, that's all they do. Like Adam standing there at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He just stands there. Eve's taking the fruit. He says nothing, does nothing. He just doesn't do anything. And so they stand there looking dumbfounded at Jesus. And Mark actually tells us that Jesus becomes angry with them because not only are they going to hold to their legalism, they recognize they've got no argument for what Jesus is saying. And at times in our life, even in that situation, if we're not careful, we'll say, well, it's still easier to choose to, to just not go with what Jesus is calling me to. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand, this man, and he did so, and his hand was restored. I'm sure there were a lot of people there who were excited that day, but there was a group that wasn't. But they, verse 11, the Pharisees, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This, as best we can tell chronologically, is the first time that in light of one of Jesus' miracles, the Pharisees react with fury. Do you know what the last time is? John 11, we read that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And after everybody comes to terms with the reality that the man who had been dead for four days just came out of the tomb, and perhaps the celebration begins once everybody can let that sink in for a little while and get over the gravity of what just happened, if you keep reading in John 11, what you'll see is the chief priests and the teachers of the law getting together and going, this has gotten out of hand. We've got to end Jesus. And you think, how in the world at that point could someone be so blind and so defiant as to turn against Jesus. And you're reminded when you come to the book of Revelation, as Pastor Brandon's led us through, the millennial kingdom after a thousand years where lifespans are increased, peace reigns on the earth, that there will still be people who say, I'm not willing to submit to Jesus's leadership and rulership in my life. And so you see this crowd that's ready to get rid of him, this foreshadowing that's coming even now. And they discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. Number five, I think I've said out loud, but just in case you're trying to fill in the blank, Jesus is more concerned with our well-being than with what people think. Hallelujah. There won't be a jury of our peers when we stand before the Lord. It'll be him. 
And if we stand before Him in light of what Christ has done, having received what Christ has done for us, believed in what He's done, we'll have only an advocate that is there speaking on our behalf to say, I paid for Him. All those marks against Him I paid for. Remember last week we sang, I believe it was last week, perhaps the week before, before the throne of God above. I know we sang it this Sunday. My name is graven on His hands. My name is written on His heart. Jesus Christ has justified us so we need not fear anybody else. And aren't you thankful it's not about what people think, but about Him? And so then we come to a passage that might seem like an in-between passage, but I believe it's really powerful. I'd like to look at that just quickly tonight. Verse 12, in these days, He went out to the mountain to pray, and all night He continued in prayer to God. And when day came, He called His disciples and chose from them 12 whom He named apostles, Simon whom He named Peter, Andrew His brother. James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Anybody ever sing that old song, there were 12 disciples, Jesus called to help him. At one time, some of my kids hadn't hardly learned to talk yet, but they loved that song. It was so great trying to hear my son say James the son of Alphaeus when he (laughs) he couldn't say multi-syllable words yet. That's one way to remember all the disciples' names. Depending on which gospel you read, you sometimes see that different names for different ones of them because often they went by a couple names. Uh, Thomas was also called Didymus, uh, the twin. We see here tonight Bartholomew, which literally means the son of Ptolemy. That's probably uh, Nathaniel. You see that with who he's paired with. And so you've got this balance in here of different ones. But you've got 12 disciples. And I want to just mention a couple things about them tonight. The first is this. Jesus Jesus' selection of the apostles is a decision bathed in much prayer. Jesus goes to a mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. We think about the sovereignty of God, we think about Jesus' divine wisdom. And all of that, it makes us sometimes think, well, it must have been quick, easy decisions, cut and dry, uh, absent of emotion. We don't see that when we read the Gospels. We see that Jesus prayed more fervently than anyone else we see in the Scripture at times. And in that, if Jesus is so fervent in prayer, being perfectly wise, being perfectly sovereign in that way, how much more do we need it as people? Remember an old quote from Martin Luther who said, my life has become so busy that I cannot fail to have less than three hours of prayer a day. That for us, we often can fill our time up with so much else and Jesus could have leaned on simply his own wisdom, but he spends all night in prayer with his Father before selecting these 12. And it's not so that he might select the 12 that are the easiest because he knows Judas Iscariot's path better than anyone. He's gonna wash Judas's feet He's going to sit across from Judas when Judas says, couldn't this money have been given to the poor instead of wasted on oil that was going to be poured on your feet and wiped with her hair? Judas was the one who would say this or do that or help himself to the money bag, as John would tell us in his gospel. Jesus knows all that. So his prayer is not that he'd be delivered from hardship, but that God would accomplish his purposes through the disciples. And so you've got the disciples, which is a group bigger than just the 12. Often the word disciples is meant to convey everyone who's following Jesus. That sometimes is a quite large group. 
Other times the disciples, when that word is used, means simply the 12. Here Luke distinguishes them to say the 12 he called apostles, which means ones who are sent out. And so they're going to be the ones who are on mission for him. They're going to be the ones who are going to carry his word to the ends of the earth even eventually. These 12 guys, what it's like to have 12 friends. I tell you what, once you pass 30 in here, for a lot of us men, we start trying to list off 12 guys we're close to. We might not make it to 12, will we? Sometimes you don't have 12 guys. Peter's, uh, excuse me, Jesus has got this grouping where you've got 12, and then inside of that you've got the three. You've got Peter and James and John. At times you've got one person, Simon Peter, who seems to be, have a special attachment to the Lord Jesus and sometimes confided in in a unique way. So Jesus has got these 12, and it's interesting looking at the list of these 12 guys. We start walking through each one of them. We sort of see some uh, distinctive things here. The last point I've got for you, number seven, is even the 12 apostles show us that there's room for all kinds of different folks, circumstances, and callings to follow Jesus. Even the 12 apostles show us that there's room for all kinds of different folks, circumstances, and callings to follow Jesus. If you've ever known anybody in a certain line of work and as you start to get to know them, you go, oh, okay, yeah, I could see you having that job. Or maybe they came out of a certain school and you say, oh, okay, yeah, I could see you having gone to that school or whatever it might be. We can typecast people real quickly if we're not careful. And at times we can think, well, a person who follows Jesus has this haircut and they have this job and they make this much money and they have this many kids and they've done this and they've done that. But the reality is that the body of Christ is a diverse group of people. Amen. And even as Paul said, I've sought to become all things for all people so that by God's grace I might win some to the Lord. That Jesus even chose 12 disciples who had some differences from one another. So let's look at this. Verse 14, Simon, whom he named Peter. We know him best of all the disciples, don't we? He's the one that most often speaks and we say, well, you know what? If I was there, I probably would have said that too. Or I'd at least thought it. Simon Peter shows us a window into ourselves. There was a man, I believe his name was Don Francisco, who tried to write a song about the resurrection from the perspective of the disciple Thomas. And he kept hitting roadblocks and roadblocks. He just couldn't get anywhere. He said, you know what? I'm going to write about it from Simon Peter's perspective. He put his pen to paper and he kept writing and he wrote verse after verse after verse after verse, and he came up with all the gates and doors were barred and all the windows fastened down, and I spent the night in sleeplessness and rose at every sound, half in hopeless sorrow and half in fear of the day, would find the soldiers breaking through to drag us all away. And he went on and on to the song so many of you know, he's alive, he's alive. The last verse of that song goes like this. As Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appears before him, he said, he raised me to my feet and as I looked into his eyes, love was shining out from him like sunlight from the skies. Fear and my confusion disappeared in sweet relief. And every fear I've ever felt just melted into peace. Simon Peter's the one we can all place ourselves in his shoes, can't we? There's something powerful about that. Almost every time he opens his mouth, he puts his foot in it. Almost every time he tries to move forward, he fails and trips and falls. But it's Jesus' grace at work in his life and in his failure where we're able to be encouraged and look at our own life and say, Lord, 
your grace is there for me as well. Because when Peter is weeping bitterly in the courtyard while Jesus is being tried after denying him three times, it's not long afterward that Peter's throwing off that outer garment and swimming all the way to the shore to see the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So Simon Peter was a guy who didn't have the qualifications of a scholar. He didn't have the qualifications of even a person with tact. But the Lord Jesus changed him. And the Peter that we see in Acts chapter 2 is different than the Peter we read about in Luke chapter 5. Because Jesus never leaves people the same. You come to Simon, then you come to Andrew. For all the noise that Simon made at home, his brother Andrew seems to be the quiet one. Andrew was the one who simply brought people to Jesus, didn't he? He brought Simon Peter to Jesus. John chapter 12, he brought Greeks to Jesus. You can make the argument that Andrew was the first home missionary and the first international missionary. You've got him bringing his own brother and then people from another nationality to Jesus because he just wants to get people to Jesus. And even though he was one of the first, he's not one of the most quoted. He brings a little boy with a lunch, five loaves and two fish to Jesus to see what he can do with it in the face of thousands of people who need to eat. Andrew just wanted to get people to Jesus. He may not have had the leadership skills. He may not have had the oratory skills. We don't know very much about him in that realm, but it seems that he's a background person and God had plans for him. Peter and Andrew, his brother, and then James and John, these two brothers, the sons of thunder. Do you remember Jesus giving them that name? James and John made a request of Jesus that they had no idea what they were saying. Can we sit at your right and your left hand in glory? Jesus said, do you know what you're asking? And we know they must have been young because they said, oh yeah, we know what we're asking. (laughs) We got that figured out. He said, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? Can you be baptized with the baptism which I'm going to be baptized with? Once again, they said, oh, yep, we can do it. Jesus must have paused for a moment, I think, and said, well, you are going to. Now, John, we're very familiar with. He wrote a gospel. He wrote 20% of the New Testament. He wrote three epistles. He wrote the book of Revelation, which we've been going through on Sunday mornings. James, we don't perhaps remember quite as well, but do you remember what happened to James? Now, do you remember when Simon Peter was in prison and an angel came in the book of Acts and set Peter free? took him back to the place where they were praying for him and they didn't even believe he'd made it there as a live person. They thought he must be a ghost. But we remember that miracle. What we often forget is that Peter was not alone in prison, but James was there. And James was martyred. It was God's plan for Peter to make it out and for James to go home. And we're reminded of the fact that in our lives, God has different plans, different purposes, different paths, different circumstances. And we don't have cookie cutter discipleship behind the Lord. He's called each one of us to the place where he's called us. And James and John, interestingly enough, wanting to be baptized with the baptism of Jesus, wanting to drink from the cup that often referred to the cup of God's wrath that Jesus was going to face. Interestingly enough, they are bookends for the disciples. James goes first and John goes last. And so these sons of thunder having no idea what lays in store for them, God knows. 
And so James and John, Philip, who also, especially in John's gospel, we see uh, him uh, mentioned. He's there going to get Nathaniel. And as he goes to get Nathaniel, you see Philip and, and Bartholomew listed. That's one of the reasons that it's believed Bartholomew is another name for Nathaniel because Philip and Nathaniel are often paired together. Philip goes to get Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, Nazareth? What good can come out of Nazareth? Now, some of y'all might have communities in mind that you might think that kind of thing too. What good's going to come out of my rival high school's territory over there? What good's going to place come from this little neighborhood I grew up in or whatever? Nathaniel had this sort of prejudice right off the bat to say, well, how in the world can we have a Messiah that came out of Nazareth? I don't think that's even possible. Philip and Nathaniel get used mighty of the Lord in that. Nathaniel's even going to go from what we're told in early church history to the nation of India or the, the region, which is now India, uh, to be on mission and to lose his life testifying for the Lord Jesus in a place far from home and giving up all that he has for the sake of the one that he scorned from the very beginning before learning quickly uh, of Jesus' might and power. Matthew, verse 15, we read about last week, a tax collector who was told, hey, come follow me. And he was foolish enough to go with Jesus. And not only that, he was foolish enough to think his friends needed to know about Jesus. And he throws a party for tax collectors, so much so that the Pharisees start to get upset even then. Say, I don't know if I'm willing to follow somebody who's going to let tax collectors come into the kingdom. I don't think I can live with that. Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So Matthew or Levi, and then Thomas, we know him, don't we? Thomas gets a bad rap. He's quoted three times prominently in the New Testament. Only one of those times is he doubting. And he just happened to be the one poor guy who wasn't in the room when the most amazing reality any of them had ever known or the most amazing miracle any of them have ever known had taken place. You can hardly fault a logical man for perhaps thinking of that. And we know Thomas was logical because we read that in John 14. John 14, we see this great description. Uh, Brandon quoted it this last week, I believe, talking about the fact that Jesus is telling the disciples, I go there to prepare a place for you, to bring you to myself, to draw you to myself. And if it were not so, I would not tell you. In my father's uh, house, there are many rooms and, and I go there to prepare a place for you so that I can receive you to myself. And we see this great truth. And then he says, and you know the way. Have you ever been in a classroom where the teacher said something and you said, we all supposed to know that? <laughs> kind of picture Philip looking around to the rest of the disciples and they all got that same blank look on their face. We know the way. I don't know the way to get any. Jesus, I don't even know how to get back to Emmaus from here, I, much less get to glory. What are you talking about? Philip pipes up and he says, um, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the great truth that when we know Jesus, we know the path. Because he's the great bridge builder and the great path maker. And we don't have to have Google directions to get there because he's taken us. And so we see this great hope. But Philip, uh, uh, speak, excuse me, not Philip, Thomas speaks up to say that. Thomas also in, uh, in uh, John 11 Whenever the disciples say, hey, look, we probably better not go over to where Mary and Martha are, even though Lazarus has died, because, you know, they wanted to kill you over there before. Thomas is the one that speaks up, and you know what he says? He says, let's go so we can also die with him. So maybe we can remember that on top of the doubting that he has. 
before as he sees the resurrected Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. And even Jesus brings Thomas full circle. And James, the son of Alphaeus, y'all remember what he said, right? Not in my Bible. James, the son of Alphaeus, never gets one word of quotation in all of the New Testament. He's listed every time the 12 are listed. He didn't get one word. You ever gotten your yearbook at the end of school and you start flipping through to see where your picture is? And you didn't make it anywhere except that one class picture that you hated that's there with everybody else. You didn't make it in the sports photos or the club photos or the hanging around the social space photos. You're not in there anywhere. I don't know that James, the son of Alphaeus, cared or perhaps ever knew, but he's not quoted a single time. Judas, the son of James, likewise is quoted one time, and that's it in John's gospel, and that's all we ever see or hear or know. But you know what's more important than we knew? What was going on? God knew. And God's plan for each one of us is not acclaim, renown, being celebrated by other people or having people think great things about us. According to early church history, not only were Simon Peter, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, not only were they faithful to follow the Lord all the way to death, but James, the son of Alphaeus, and Judas, the son of James, a long obedience in the same direction behind their Savior, though never quoted, were found faithful. And so whether you're a loud person in here or a quiet person, God can use you. You can be found faithful. Whether you're a smart person or someone who considers themselves not that smart, God can use you. And when you follow Jesus, there's no end to what he can do. Lastly, one other disciple who we all are familiar with, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We don't know a great deal about a lot of these guys. And sometimes we have to be careful because we could read in more than we probably should. However, most believe that Judas's name, Iscariot, means that he was from a place called Kiriath, which was near Jerusalem. And so if you put yourself in the context of that day, what that brings you to is that there was one disciple that came from the region closest to Jerusalem. And in the mindset of the people that day, the closer you were to Jerusalem, the closer you were to being a varsity follower of God the closer you were to having the kind of credentials that you needed. And perhaps for those looking from the outside in, there would be one that they saw who seemed to fit the bill, fit the description, fit the makeup of what it should be. And perhaps if they were looking from the outside in, they'd say, well, I'll tell you what, at least Jesus has got one disciple with some credentials. That Judas I've been real impressed with. You know, he's from near Jerusalem. All these other guys are from Nazareth. Is anything good ever going to come from Nazareth? Or they're from Capernaum or other places in Galilee. You know, they're a, a long shot away uh, from, from Jerusalem. But he's got that one in there that I think is keeping the rest of them straight. You know, he's from near Jerusalem. That Judas, I think it's going to go real well with him. You ever been real wrong? You ever really misjudged someone, something? One of the saddest testimonies in Scripture is it seems that the closer that Judas Iscariot got to Jesus, he became a traitor. For those who come to the Lord Jesus, and geographically they get close, 
but their hearts get hard. It's a bad situation. Luke's going to go on, and in a few chapters, we'll read about two prodigal sons, one that left and one that stayed home. And that one that stayed home got more hard-hearted than that son that left. And that one that stayed home was more unwilling to repent, more unwilling to be where his father was than that one that left. And Judas may have had all the credentials, but in the reality of Jesus' light and glory and truth and call to submit to him, Judas seems unwilling. You know, for any way that the world would want to consider us good or worthy, the most important way we can be found worthy is to be found worthy in the sight of the Lord Jesus. And so I think all of us can take the warning from these 12 guys. You know, we may not have credentials, we may not have the wisdom, we may not have this, we may not have that, but if we're willing to have our hearts molded and shaped by the Lord Jesus to let Him be in control and not us, even in our need of forgiveness and grace, that He's faithful because He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so, as the Old Testament says, when you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. May we be like the 11 and see God use us. And may we heed the warning of the one who, as he got closer to Jesus, his heart got harder. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, what a wonder that the Lord Jesus chose apostles to send out. And not only that, that he has chosen us who have trusted in him to be used for your purposes, Lord. That that is your will, that we would grow in following and serving you. Not in order to earn our salvation. We have not been saved by good works, Lord, but we have been saved unto good works. And so, Lord, however you would challenge us tonight, with a need for a softer heart, with a need perhaps to focus on your son and and less on perhaps things that would be going on around us that if we're not careful, we can fall into that camp the Pharisees were. We fail to recognize human need and we fail to recognize you at work and we fail to give the truth a hearing. So Father, however you would use your word, your truth, we thank you, Lord that your word never returns void. We praise you for being with us here even tonight. We thank you for the reality of Jesus Christ, our great hope. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we ask this. And all God's people said, Amen. amen.